Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 20, Deuteronomy chapter 16. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 16 is a rather expansive portion of the fifth book of Torah that begins by describing the three major pilgrimage festivals, and then it moves into discussing the requirements and expectations of the civil and governmental leaders, and then finally it renews instructions concerning proper worship practices as well as reiterating some banned ones. Now, as always, we have to keep in mind the context of this book in general. And the context is that Moses is making his final address to the people of Israel only days before he will die. And as he stands before Israel in the mountains of Moab that overlook the Jordan Valley and that long hoped-for home of God's people is in view, if there is one underlying theme that Moses is attempting to project it is probably best summed up by the words of one of Israel's most notable kings that will come many years after Moses, Solomon, son of David. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon reaches this conclusion in chapter 12, verse 13, after his long rambling essay on the meaning of life. He says this, the end of the matter, all's been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man is to obey the commandments of God. Now the word used here for Hebrew in Hebrew for man is Adam. And it means man in general. So in the sense of this verse, it means mankind as a whole. This verse in no way limits its audience to Hebrews. It's referring to all, Gentile or Hebrew, who worship the God of Israel. I point this out because it's been the tendency of believers to want to make some laws and commands only for Israel and others only for Gentiles. And we tend to be pretty arbitrary about which is which. Now let us always remember that God's written commands are contained in his law. And that Yeshua says that the law has never ceased and that it will not until the heavens and earth pass away. What Moses is saying applies to us. Messiah's Ecclesia. Just as much as it does to the Hebrew people in general. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 16 together. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 16. If that's the, if you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 215, 215. Deuteronomy chapter 16. Observe the month of Aviv and keep Pesach to Adonai your God. For in the month of Aviv, Adonai your God brought you out of Egypt at night. 
You are to sacrifice the Passover offering from flock and herd to Adonai your God in the place where Adonai will choose to have his name live. You're not to eat any hamets, any leaven with it. For seven days you're to eat it with matzah, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. Thus you will remember the day that you left the land of Egypt as long as you live. No leaven is to be seen with you anywhere in your territory for seven days. None of the meat from your sacrifice on the first day in the evening is to remain all night until morning. You may not sacrifice the Pesah offering in just any of the towns that Adonai, your God, is giving you, but at the place where Adonai, uh, your God, will choose to have his name live, it is there where you are to sacrifice the Passover offering in the evening when the sun sets at the time of year that you came out of Egypt. You're to roast it and eat it in the place Adonai, your God, will choose. In the morning, you will return and go to your tents. For six days, you are to eat matzah. On the seventh day, there is to be a festive assembly for Adonai, your God. Do not do any kind of work. You are to count seven weeks. You are to begin counting seven weeks from the time you first put your sickle to the standing grain. You are to observe the festival of Shavuot for Adonai, your God, with a voluntary offering which you are to give in accordance with the degree to which Adonai your God has prospered you. You are to re- rejoice in the presence of Adonai your God. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female slaves, the Levites living in your towns, and the foreigners, orphans, widows living among you in the place where Adonai your God will choose to have his name live. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Then you will keep and obey these laws. You are to keep the festival of Sukkot for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and winepress. Rejoice at your festival. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female slaves, the Levites and the foreigners, orphans and widows living among you. Seven days you are to keep the festival for Adonai your God and the place Adonai your God will choose because Adonai your God will bless you in all your crops and all your work. So you're to be full of joy. Three times a year... All your men are to appear in the presence of Adonai your God in the place which he will choose at the festival of Matzah, at the festival of Shavuot, and at the festival festival of Sukkot. They are not to show up before Adonai empty-handed. But every man is to give what he can in accordance with the blessing Adonai your God has given to you. You are to appoint judges and officers for your gates. In the cities, Adonai your God is giving you tribe by tribe, and they are to judge the people with righteous judgment. You are not to distort justice or show favoritism, and you are not to accept a bribe. For a gift blinds the eyes of the wise, and it twists the words of even the upright. Justice, only justice you must pursue, so that you will live and inherit the land Adonai your God is giving you. You're not to plant any sort of tree as a sacred pole beside the altar of Adonai, your God, that you will make for yourselves. Likewise, do not set up a standing stone. Adonai, your God, hates such such things. The feasts of Israel are central, not only to Israel's worship practices, but to establishing their identity as God's people. And it is 
just so wonderfully pleasing to me that the Lord's church is at last joining in by celebrating these feasts. The seven biblical feasts are among what the Lord calls his appointed times. These are cyclical events based on the calendar that Jehovah has established in order that Israel would have cause to pause and to reflect on just who they are and who God is. Of those seven feasts, three of them are especially important and their importance is emphasized by the command that the Hebrews are to make a pilgrimage, a journey to the location of the central sanctuary in order to present themselves before the Lord on those occasions. Now, since the Lord's presence was seen as residing above the Ark of the Covenant, then one was to present oneself to the Lord by means of coming to the location of the Ark, which was, of course, at the tabernacle and then later on then at the temple. Now, by law, it was the adult males who were obligated to make these pilgrimage journeys. Their homes, perhaps even substantial distance from the sanctuary, is generally no excuse to forego these three yearly festivals. We've already seen that uh, that all of these pilgrimage festivals are family occasions. And so the entire family is urged to come. But that is left to the preference of each household. Now, in reality, the family regularly accompanied the males because these were such special and anticipated celebrations that all usually desired to be present for them. Now, while on the one hand, so much of how Israel lived and operated was quite similar to how their neighbors did in those days, on the other hand, this act, this requirement of making a pilgrimage for a religious festival to a god wasn't known. These three pilgrimages marked the Hebrews as a different people who worshipped a different God in a different way from all other peoples and nations. The Hebrew word for pilgrimage is hag, hag. And some 2,000 years after the Lord mandated these three yearly Pilgrimages, a new and rival Middle Eastern religion was formed that incorporated the same idea, Islam. In fact, Islam borrowed the Hebrew word for pilgrimage, so in Arabic it's called a Hajj. Now, although we've had several lessons specifically on the biblical feasts, we're going to spend some time with these three pilgrimage feasts as described in Deuteronomy, as there are some aspects of them that aren't readily apparent, at least to Gentiles they're not. Now, even more, since virtually every great happening in Christ's life centered on one or the other 
of these pilgrimage feasts, we should immediately suspect that the timing of that was no coincidence. Now, the first feast that is discussed in uh, chapter 16 is Passover in Hebrew, Pesach. And in verse 1, Israel is told to observe the month of Aviv and to offer a Passover sacrifice to God. By the way, Aviv... Um, uh, in this on alternate names. In verse 1, Israel is told to observe this month of Aviv, to offer this Passover sacrifice to God, because that was the night that Yehovah redeemed Israel. He freed Israel from the clutches of Egypt. And if we're going to point to one thing that most graphically identifies the people of Israel as set apart for God, and which also stirs the, the very depths of the souls of Jewish people, it has to be Passover. It was the fact that this act of saving Israel from Egypt and setting them apart as an identifiable people group with Jehovah as their God and King, it was this that established them as the nation of God. Now, Aviv is the Hebrew name for the month that Pesach is to be celebrated, and it literally means new ears of grain. Now this reference to grain indicates the agricultural connection of this celebration that moves in parallel with the exodus from Egypt connection. Aviv corresponds to our modern months of March and April in that range. So we're dealing with a springtime season. Now, Aviv is also the first month of the Hebrew religious calendar year. Now, I mentioned last week that we should not confuse the Hebrew religious calendar year with the Hebrew civil calendar year because the Hebrew civil calendar year makes Tishri the first month of the year. So while Aviv begins anew the cycle of the religious calendar year, the first day of Aviv is not New Year's Day. Rather, the first day of the month of Tishri is Jewish New Year. So why does God ordain this separate religious calendar year with Aviv as its beginning? Because it was the month of Aviv that marks the official beginning of Israel as a set-apart nation. And the Lord of God, uh, the Lord God of Israel, um, as their God. Now, Aviv marks the beginning of Israel. It's an important month. Let's recall that the reason that Passover is called Passover is because on a singularly dreadful and yet wonderful night, the Lord himself passed through the whole land of Egypt and killed the firstborn males, animals and humans, of every household, except for those folks who trusted him and so followed the instruction to sacrifice a yearling lamb and paint its blood on the doorsteps of their homes. Those families who did this 
as an act of obedience and submission to Yehovah. And by the way, these were primarily, but not universally, Hebrew families that did this. They were not touched by death on that night. And this devastating divine judgment caused Pharaoh to finally understand that he could not maintain his grip on God's people any longer. The following morning, Israel massed together up in the land of Goshen, that fertile delta region of Egypt where most Israelites resided. And with Moses leading, they marched away from centuries of slavery and oppression. Now, while I'm sure that in English, Passover is always going to be called Passover, in reality, the Hebrew word Pesah, that's translated to Passover, doesn't mean Passover. It comes from the verb Pasach, which means to protect. Therefore, in verse 2, where we read that you shall slaughter the Passover sacrifice, what it says in Hebrew is that they shall slaughter the Seva Pesah. Literally, it means the protective sacrifice. Referring to the fact that Israel was protected from God's final deadly plague upon Egypt. It was only the result of that protection that one could say they were passed over. And that name Passover has stuck since Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible in the 5th century AD and he chose the term Passover to translate Pesach. Now rabbis have long recognized that there are differences between the way the very first Pesach was observed in Egypt and the way it was thereafter celebrated. Now, before I demonstrate some of those differences, let me point out something that confuses Christian and Jew alike all right, about the Passover celebration. Pesach, Passover, is in reality but a one-day feast that is to occur every year on Aviv 14th, or as it was later called in the Babylonian tongue, Nisan 14th. And the following day, Aviv 15th, begins another and different seven-day biblical feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread or in Hebrew the Feast of Matzah. Then in the midst of this seven days of Matzah yet another biblical festival occurs in an overlapping fashion. Bikurim first fruits which happens on the 16th of Aviv. So in a rapid succession We have Passover on the 14th, Martz on the 15th, first fruits on the 16th. Okay. While Passover and first fruits are each just one day events, Matzah goes on for seven days. And first fruits always happens during the top, during the period of the seven days of Matzah. You with me? Now here's the thing. 
Because these three springtime biblical feasts are so tightly interwoven, and because the feast that sits in the center of the three is called the Feast of Matzah, it's become a rather standard practice to refer to this entire bundle, if you would, of three feasts as simply the Feast of Matzah, or Unleavened Bread. But what makes the whole thing even more problematic is that it became just as common to call this entire bundle of three feasts Pesach, Passover. Because Passover is so symbolic of Israel's passage from Egypt. Now don't think that this is simply about our modern tendency towards bumper sticker theology or some sloppy biblical scholarship. Nor is it the result of Gentile errors in understanding the Hebrew language. Far from it. Long before Christ, Christ's era, these two names, Passover and Unleavened Bread, matzah, Pesach and Matzah, were used interchangeably by the Hebrews. Therefore, not surprisingly, that is exactly the way the New Testament deals with these springtime biblical feasts. One time, the Gospels will refer to the single day of Passover as Passover, and another time, it will refer to the whole bundle of three feasts as Passover. One time, it will call the first day of Matzah plus the, the next six for the total of seven days of Matzah, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then at another time, it'll call the entire bundle of three feasts Matzah, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Confusing? Oh, yeah. You bet it is. And that's why one must always look at Holy Scripture, Old Testament, and New from a Hebrew mindset. Okay, Existent especially in the era that whatever passages were written. Okay? Or we're, we're going to at times wander off into the weeds thinking something is simple and straightforward when in fact the meaning is buried deep in Hebrew culture, thought, and tradition. Now I'm going to be giving you some examples of that momentarily, but first let's go back to the differences of the way that these three spring feasts were celebrated on their inauguration in Egypt, as opposed to how they were going to be observed out in the wilderness. And then how that would change again as they settled in Canaan, and then how those observances evolved over the centuries as the Jewish people dispersed into the Gentile nations of the world. Now, the original Passover in Egypt was observed at home. Okay? The firstborn of each household behaved more or less like a family priest. Although that firstborn son didn't hold the title of a priest and he wasn't regarded as a priest. And so usually that firstborn son led the various rituals if he was old enough to do that. It was the firstborn who appropriately slaughtered the lamb and painted its blood on the doorposts of his family's home because A, it was his job, and B, it was his life that was going to be protected by this act. 
Remember, the firstborn was the only family member in danger. Because it was only the firstborns, meaning by by definition a family's firstborn son, who was being threatened by death at the hand of God. Now while Israel was in Egypt, there was not as yet an official priesthood. That was going to happen at Mount Sinai a couple months down the line. Yet many of those Hebrews in Egypt had this distant memory of certain religious rituals that were handed down from Abraham to Isaac and then to their father, Jacob. And so they followed the customs of that era by each family recognizing the firstborn male present within each household within each household as the officiator over whatever traditional rituals they followed. So while the original Pesach was to take place within the residence of each family, once the law was given to celebrate it as an annual observance, the condition changed. And now the Pesach sacrifice and the eating of the sacrificial lamb was to take place only at the centralized sanctuary. Remember, that centralized sanctuary didn't exist yet in Egypt. That is the meaning of the words in verse 2, where it says the sacrifice is to take place at the location where the Lord establishes his name. In addition, the Levite priests become the sole authorized officiators of sacrificial ritual, and thus they replaced all those firstborn sons as the spiritual leaders. I don't imagine they took to that very well, those firstborn sons. Now the next difference between the original Passover and those subsequent to it are that the sacrifice can be an animal from the flock or the herd. This means lambs and goats, possibly even cattle, could be used. Now the passages of the book of Exodus, when discussing the required animal, says that it must be of the flock, meaning a sheep or a goat. The rabbis have had a difficult time with this and generally have simply decided that it would be best to follow the original instruction of Exodus, which was usually to use a lamb. Now some of the reasons stated for these differing instructions are that a sheep or a goat would be suitable as the amount of meat needed for a typical family of around 10 or so individuals. But once Israel settled in the land of Canaan, it would be possible for a number of families to get together and share one larger animal, like a cow. Now further, the general evidence is that because Egyptians much preferred cattle to sheep for meat, and since Hebrews, as far as we know, raised sheep and goats and not cattle at that time, it would have been necessary for a Hebrew to purchase a cow from an Egyptian for the sacrifice. Something that, you know, really wouldn't have been all that appropriate for what was just about to happen on Passover night. Let me buy your cow so you can die. You can die anyway. 
Now, be that as it may, the use of the lamb as the sacrificial animal became the generally accepted practice and the use of cattle was limited to other kinds of required sacrifices that usually occurred at the tabernacle and then the temple during the same time as the, that these biblical feasts were occurring. Well, verses 5 through 7 spell out the need for bringing the lamb to the central sanctuary for slaughter under all circumstances. But it also established the time of day on the 14th of Abib or Nisan that the slaughtering was to occur. It is in the evening at sundown. Now let's be clear as to just what this means because it's going to lend much to our understanding of just what happened at Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay, In the evening at sundown means towards the end of the day, but before full darkness sets in. The reason for this requirement is quite simple. First, that's how it was done back in Egypt. Second, the Hebrew 24-hour day is counted quite differently than it is in our modern Western culture. In Western culture, a clock measures a day. We don't go by the position of the sun in the sky or whether it's darker or lighter outside. We go, we long ago arbitrarily established a time called midnight, 12 o'clock, as the moment at which one day ends and the next day commences. That is not a biblical day, and it is not when days ended and began in Israelite or Middle Eastern culture in general. The Hebrew, and therefore the biblical day, ended at sundown, which of course is the moment at which a new day also begins. Generally speaking, it came to be defined as that instant when the sun set over the horizon and a certain group of three stars is visible in the evening sky because the sunlight had diminished enough for you to see them to a certain brightness level. So our problem is always to reconcile the Western day with the Hebrew day when we're reading about when certain things happened during the day in the Bible. So, the point of this passage in Deuteronomy is that the Pesach lambs must be slaughtered towards the end of the day on Aviv the 14th at the tabernacle, but it has to happen before it comes dark enough that the next day begins. Now, obviously, if they waited too long to begin slaughtering the thousands of lambs that would be involved, the day would change from the 14th to the 15th and the law would be broken. Therefore, when Israel settled in Canaan and they began regularly observing Passover, scores of thousands of people would show up at the temple and they would wait until the end of the day for their lambs to be slaughtered with the help of a priest. Well, in time, the logistics 
of slaughtering all those thousands of lambs in such a short time span at the end of the day became nearly impossible. And so a shift in the definition of the meaning of the word sunset was instituted. Since the Hebrews marked midday by the, by the sun reaching its zenith, the highest point in the sky that we call noon, okay, then from that point forward the sun's beginning to set because it's heading downward now. In Jesus' day, it was about three hours after the sun's zenith, what we would generally call 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon, that the slaughtering of the lambs commenced on Aviv the 14th. Now, generally speaking, it ended at around 6 p.m. Because since it was springtime, the day would change to the new day somewhere between 6.30 and 7 p.m. by the way we'd measure it today on a clock. And then again, that's according, that's assuming that we're on approximately the same latitude as Jerusalem, because those of you who travel back and forth up north or snowbirds, you know darn well, what time it gets dark down here is nothing like when it gets dark up there. So it changes. Now, one other important difference in the celebrations between the very first one in Egypt and then all the later ones is that the first one Passover had no connection to agriculture. It was all about the exodus from Egypt. Later, the element of agriculture was added to it. Now, let's talk about that for just a moment. Because when we discuss Shavuot, or Pentecost, I'll fill in some additional information that's going to help bring some pieces together. The agricultural element was added to the Passover bundle of feasts by the ordination of a feast called First Fruits. And this occurred the second day after Passover. The usual explanation for this is that the first of the barley harvest, the first type of grain to ripen in the fields, was brought in on First Fruits. And then several weeks later, there would be another harvest of grain, but this time it would be wheat, because that always ripened later than barley. Well, technically, first fruits was not indicative of the beginning of the barley harvest. That's not correct. Okay. Rather, the procedure was that a sheaf of unripened barley, green barley, was brought in to be waved by the priest at the at, at a tabernacle or temple ceremony. Some days later, when the barley actually ripened and then started to turn brown, that's when the harvesting would commence. The exact day that the actual harvesting commenced, of course, varied from year to year. Okay, any farmer knows you can't set a day of harvest by the calendar. Okay, you have to wait until you observe the grain or the fruit or grapes or whatever that has actually achieved that exact point of ripening that's optimum. And of course, that's going to vary randomly from year to year. So the first fruits feast day observance on Aviv 16th was really more of a pre-harvest festival. Okay. It was a day to anticipate 
the soon coming barley harvest. It was not a time when the harvest was actually occurring. And so the first of the actual usable harvest was presented to the Lord. In fact, the rabbis explain that by bringing the not yet ripened sheaf of barley before the Lord, they were beseeching him to give them a good harvest. At this point, they didn't know yet what the result of the harvest would be. Now, while I've listed some differences in how the Passover feast was observed from the original one to later times, for the most part, the ritual has remained the same, at least for as long as the temple stood. Now, for instance, the lamb was to be roasted over a fire and no part of it was to be left raw and none of its bones were to be broken. But perhaps the most symbolic of the protocol that was never altered is that only unleavened bread is to be eaten alongside the eating of the lamb and that for the entire period of the combined springtime feast days. Now this gives us a good segue into a discussion of another feast that begins on the day following Passover which is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Matzah. Now notice how in Deuteronomy 16.8 we just simply pass from Pesach to Matzah without it even being highlighted. That is, we move from the Feast of Passover right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread without even a break in the passages. And there it speaks of continuing to eat unleavened bread during the whole time of the feast. The the uh, in three spring feasts in the end, the end of the three spring feasts is marked by the way with a special gathering and this gathering does not take place at the tabernacle it takes place in small groups back in whatever village or town each family came from now let me back up and summarize just a bit to get kind of get us releveled this 16th chapter of Deuteronomy is dealing primarily with the three God-ordained pilgrimage Hag festivals. The festival of Matzah, the the Feast of Weeks, which is called Shavuot, and the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. The first is a springtime feast, the second is a summer feast, and the last is a fall feast. Now, but the thing is, I've been talking to you to this point only about the springtime feasts. The confusing part of this is that the springtime feast of unleavened bread, matzah, itself is just part of a three-feast bundle of feasts. Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. So don't mix up the name given to the bundle of three springtime feasts that occurs in rapid succession with the three rather spread out pilgrimage feasts that are the main thrust of this chapter. So far, we're only discussing the first one of the three pilgrimage feasts, the springtime pilgrimage feast called matzah. Now, of this bundle of three springtime feasts, it's the feast of matzah that's actually the pilgrimage feast. Passover is not, technically, a pilgrimage feast, nor is first fruits a pilgrimage feast. 
However, since one is required to journey to be at the tabernacle for the pilgrimage feast of Matzah, it follows that the Passover lamb should be slaughtered there the day before Matzah as well, simply as a matter of practicality as much as anything. Now let me add one more important element that explains why, even though Passover is not a pilgrimage feast, that it was still a requirement that the Passover lamb had to be slaughtered at the central sanctuary. God declared in Leviticus that the first day of the Feast of Matzah and the last day of the Feast of Matzah were Sabbath days. Not the Sabbath day, not the seventh day Sabbath, but rather these were special days when no regular work was to be done so there could be preparation for these feasts. Now since the first day of Matzah was declared as a Sabbath day, the law did not allow a Hebrew pilgrim to travel on that day. Therefore, the Israelites had to do their traveling to the tabernacle some days earlier than the first day of the Feast of Matzah, which occurred on Aviv the 15th. That means they automatically were already at the tabernacle or the temple on Aviv the 14th on Passover or even some days earlier to avoid traveling on that Sabbath day of the 15th thereby making it necessary that it was at the tabernacle where the lambs had to be slaughtered. In other words, if it was necessary for you to be somewhere on Wednesday morning, but for some reason travel on Tuesday was an impossibility, you would be forced to travel and arrive on Monday, right? Or even earlier. For the Jews, that one day earlier was the feast of Passover. So there was no other choice but to slaughter and cook your lamb at the temple because that's where you were. Now I told you this was a little bit complicated but hang in there with me because if you ever hope to understand what went on with Jesus Christ, the Last Supper, His death and resurrection, you need to understand what it is we're discussing here. Now let's talk about this Sabbath matter for a minute. Generally speaking, there were two kinds of Sabbaths. The weekly seventh-day Sabbath, we all know as Shabbat, and then the various extra Sabbath days that were assigned for the biblical feasts. There were not only different kinds of Sabbaths, but also what was prohibited and what was permitted on each kind of Sabbath varied a bit. The seventh-day Sabbath was an entirely different observance than these additional special Sabbath days that were attached to the feasts, and this is because they were created for entirely different purposes. The word Sabbath or Shabbat doesn't so much mean mean to rest as it means to cease. It means to stop. Stop doing the work that you normally do to make your livelihood or to accomplish your regular household chores. It means to stop your creative efforts. It doesn't mean you have to lie on a couch all day. Not bad. 
doesn't mean you can't play with your children or grandchildren. The seventh day Sabbath that occurs every week has the most stringent of all the Sabbath requirements that even included included not preparing any meals because that's how they observed it out in the wilderness when God fed Israel by means of manna. Recall that on the sixth day of the week, the day before the Sabbath, Israel was to gather double the amount of manna as normal and cook it then and prepare it any way they chose in order that they could eat that extra portion without any further preparation on the seventh day Shabbat. Well, these additional Sabbaths that were attached to the various feasts had different requirements. The requirements for some were more rigid than the requirements for the others. The requirements for the extra Sabbaths attached to the springtime feasts were that on these particular extra Sabbaths, food preparation could continue. Okay. Gathering up animals that one might have to bring upon, bring on the journey and other preparations for travel in order to arrive at the temple on time could continue. Some of these festival Sabbaths didn't even begin and end at the normal start and stop times for a 24 hour day. Some might begin the moment the day changed to the festival Sabbath day, but end by noon or a little bit part way through the day. At other times, a particular festival Sabbath might not even start until noon or thereafter. So we had great variation in this. Now let me again affirm, when I'm talking about these special Sabbaths, I'm not talking about the seventh day Sabbath. Because its schedule, the seventh day Sabbath, is, is, and its ritual is fixed and firm and it never changed. These festival Sabbath days are additional days where the work schedule was modified and limited and preparation for the coming biblical feast to which they were attached were authorized by the Lord to continue for all varying degrees. Now it's important that we recognize that when the scriptures are referring to the special feast Sabbaths as opposed to the standard seventh day Sabbath that the conditions were very different. What was going on was very different. Please notice, since Passover, which is a one-day event, and then the Feast of Matzah, which is a seven-day event, begins one right after the other, we have an overall springtime feast period of eight days. Seven plus one. This means that during this festival period of eight days, at least one Seventh-day Sabbath was bound to occur, right? Okay. But depending on the year, two Seventh-day Sabbaths could happen. You can understand that, right? Therefore, the festival Sabbath days, these special Sabbaths, would be in addition to the one or two seventh-day Sabbaths that occurred during that eight-day springtime feast schedule. Okay? So let's wrap up today's lesson by applying this to Yeshua's last Passover celebration. Now, I'm only going to go so deep with this, and we'll peel this onion back another layer or two in another lesson. In the Gospels... 
We find that Yeshua was killed, put into a rocky tomb, and then arose during the springtime feast days. How do I know that? Because it says so. I don't have to guess. I don't have to assume. We are unequivocally told that he died on Passover day and arose on the first day of the week. We also know that there was at least one Sabbath in between those times. Had to be. Okay, the kind of Sabbath that is the regular Seventh-day Sabbath. Christian tradition, of course, is that Passover in the year Yeshua died was on a Friday, the sixth day of the week. Therefore, we have established this Christian traditional observance that we call Good Friday and say that this was the day Christ was crucified. Now, there's a problem with that traditional Christian schedule. It is that the story of Jonah, all right, Jonah, being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights was supposed to be the pattern of the time period from Jesus' death until his resurrection. Well, Christian and Jewish scholars and teachers, myself included, have attempted all kinds of ways to figure out how we can turn Friday night and Saturday night in the tomb into three nights instead of just two so that Jonah's prophecy is properly fulfilled. It just doesn't work. But no matter how one attempts to get around this problem, if as usual, we have Yeshua crucified on Friday afternoon, going into the grave before Friday night, arising about sunrise on Sunday morning, we just can't get past the obvious Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning problem. We just can't cram three nights into this scenario. Although there's been some pretty creative attempts to do it. This is where our understanding of how the feast days worked. And this is according to scripture, not conjecture. And how the various kinds of Sabbaths worked. That helps us out. But there's one more important piece of information that's been glossed over. That is perhaps the key to the whole thing. It was that during Jesus' era, there were differing traditions among the Jews on when and how to do Passover. In fact, there were exactly three different traditions, all in operation at the same time. There was the Judean tradition, meaning the one that was observed by those who lived in and around Jerusalem in the kingdom of Judah, Judea. So they were Judeans. Then there were the Samaritan, there was the Samaritan tradition, for those Jews who lived in Samaria, the central portion of the Holy Lands. And then finally, there was the Galilean tradition for those who lived up in Galilee, the northernmost area of the Holy Lands. Now, the Samaritan tradition revolved around their belief that Mount Gerizim was the place where the temple to God belonged. So the Samaritans broke loyalty with the Judeans, and they actually built their own temple and established their own priesthood. This involved doing things just a little bit different than what was the established protocol at the Jerusalem temple, the Temple Mount, that we're all familiar with. 
The Galilean traditions were almost identical to the Judean traditions. The Galileans recognized the authority of the Jerusalem-based priesthood, and so they recognized Herod's temple in Jerusalem as the proper place of sacrifice. But the Galileans had a problem. They were pretty doggone far away from Jerusalem. So traveling there was much more difficult. It took a longer period of time than those Hebrews who already lived in Judah real close to the temple. The Galileans had to begin preparations for the pilgrimage feasts, especially, earlier than their Judean brothers. Right? I mean, if you've got a family reunion going on here at your house on Merritt Island, and you've got family in California, they got to start earlier to get here to whenever you're going to have your celebration. Therefore, the Galileans tinkered a bit with the feast schedule, including when the festival Sabbaths began and ended and what was permitted and what was prohibited on those special feast Sabbaths. Let me cut to the chase. Yeshua and his disciples were what? Galileans, every one of them. They naturally observed the Galilean festival traditions they all grew up with. It would have been unthinkable for them to do anything else. The Judeans were somewhat understanding about the distances that had to be traveled by those Galileans, and so they allowed for their slightly different traditions to accommodate this, this, this difficulty. But they didn't much care for a couple of other traditions that both the Galileans and the Samaritans made to the Passover rituals that had really nothing to do with travel distances and time. See, the Galileans and the Samaritans added an extra ritual celebration that the Judeans didn't recognize. This celebration was called Seudah Maf Shechet. And it happened as the day was changing from Avid the 13th to the 14th. Now remember, Passover was Aviv the 14th. And also remember the day changes by our current clock at about 7 p.m. in the evening. Okay. In this celebration, the Galileans and the Samaritans put an emphasis on the firstborn aspect of the Exodus, calling to mind that it was the firstborn Israelites who were the ones that were protected from death. All right, And it was the firstborn Egyptians who were killed. So the Galileans declared that Aviv the 14th, the day of Passover, was to be a day of fasting for firstborn sons of each family in honor of the Lord saving their lives. However, they also added this ritual meal that occurred at the beginning of Passover, Aviv the 14th, called Seodah Maf Shechet. Okay. Now, since the Hebrew day changes at sundown, think about this, the first meal of any new day for any Israelite would be what? Dinner time. Right? Day changes it, you know, in the evening. So the first meal of the new day 
was dinner. For a Westerner, our first meal of the day is breakfast, because it occurs around sunrise, which is the beginning of our day. So the firstborn sons of the Galileans and the Samaritans would have a meal to, to, to begin to kick off the day of Passover. It was a dinner meal. And then they would fast for the next 24 hours until it was time for the official Passover Seder, official Passover meal. Are you following me here? Yeah. Now let me repeat this so we're all together. What I'm telling you is not conjecture or some new modern interpretation. This is found in the ancient Hebrew Mishnah fully recognized by religious Jews. And by the way, this added celebration of having a dinner meal to start out the day of Passover that's called Seodah Mafshachet literally translates to Last Supper. The title Last Supper for them meant this was going to be the Last Supper for a firstborn Hebrew who lived either in Galilee or Samaria because then they were going to fast for the next 24 hours until the Passover meal came along that they would eat with all the other Hebrews. That's why they called it the Last Supper. Now I hope some mental light bulbs are starting to go off here. Now it's been long recognized that in antiquity there were two Passover seders. One the night before Passover and the other the night of Passover. It's the one that occurs on the night of Passover that Jews celebrate today and that Christians are pretty much aware of. However, since the details that have been buried deep in the bowels of Jewish historical documents, we have the realities of this dual Seder and and, and how the two meals are differed and who participated in them and why and, and, and what was served. And all that we've overlooked. We just overlooked it. I think that's enough information for one day. Okay. Now I want you to think about this carefully for the next several days. And next week, I'm going to lay out a timeline for you that should help to untangle a lot of the mystery about the death and the resurrection of Yeshua at Passover. Okay? All right. We'll see you next time.